Amen. Trust him more. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Children, it's Mr. Junior Church. I think most of them are already out, but if you are a younger child and you're not with the kids that sang, go on your way to Junior Church right now. You can make your way to Junior Church. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2, verses 19 through 21. Philippians 2, 19 through 21. We have just... We've been marching our way through Philippians. We've been preaching through Philippians. And two weeks ago, we looked at this, the example of Christ called the Christ hymn. The example of Jesus is the ultimate example of suffering. And we talked about being, you know, the light and, uh, and letting our work shine a couple weeks ago. And today we're going to come back to this idea of self-sacrifice, this idea of self-sacrifice. And I have an illustration to get us started. Like most physicians of great experience, Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane have become preoccupied with a particular facet of medicine. His strong feelings concern the use of general anesthesia in major surgery. He believed that most major operations could and should be performed under local anesthetic. For in his opinion, the hazards of a general anesthesia outweighed the risks of the surgery itself. So he thought and was trying to convince the public that we can do most of these operations with just a local anesthetic instead of a general anesthesia where you're totally asleep. For example, Kane cited a surgical candidate who had a history of heart trouble. In some cases, a surgeon may be reticent to operate, fearing the effects of the anesthesia on the heart of the patient. In some patients with specific anesthesia, allergies never awakened. Kane's medical mission was to prove to his colleagues once for all the viability of local anesthesia. He wanted to prove to his physician colleagues once for all that local anesthesia will work. It would take a great deal of convincing, though, because who are you going to find? Who are you going to find who's willing to go through that surgery with just a local anesthetic? Many patients were understandably squeamish at the thought of being awake while it happens. I would tell you I would be one of those. Others feared the possibility of anesthesia wearing off in the middle of the surgery. That is one of my fears, too. To break down these psychological barriers, Kane would have to find a volunteer who was very brave, a candidate for major surgery who would be willing to accept only local anesthesia. How are you going to find a candidate for that? And his distinguished 37 years. He's been a physician for 37 years. So in his distinguished 37 years in the medical field, Kane had performed nearly 4,000 appendectomies. 4,000 appendectomies. So this next appendectomy would be routine in every way except one. Dr. Kane's patient would remain awake throughout the surgical procedure under local anesthesia. The operation was scheduled for a Tuesday morning. The patient was prepped, wheeled into the operating room, and the local anesthesia was administered. Kane began, as he had thousands of times before, carefully dissecting superficial tissues and clamping blood vessels on his way in. Locating the appendix, the 60-year-old surgeon deftly pulled it up, excised it, and bent the stump under. Through it all, the patient experienced only minor discomfort. The operation concluded successfully. 
The patient rested well that night. In fact, the following day, his recovery was said to progress better than most post-operative patients. Cain had proved his point. The risks of general anesthesia could be avoided in major operations. The potential of local anesthesia had been fully realized thanks to the example of an innovative doctor and a very brave volunteer. This took place in 1921. Dr. Kane and the patient who volunteered had a great deal in common. They were the same man. Dr. Kane, to prove the viability of local anesthesia, uh, anesthesia, had operated on himself. He did an appendectomy on himself under local anesthesia. So in that example, we have one willing to sacrifice for the good of the cause, right? One willing to sacrifice for the good of the cause. I guess nobody else was willing to go through an epidectomy on local anesthesia. Like, who would be afraid of that? I don't know. So he did it on himself. And that's what Jesus did for us. Jesus sacrificed himself, obviously, in a much, much, much incomparable and greater way. Jesus put himself in our place on the cross. We needed a sin substitute. We needed a fully human sin substitute. We need a fully human sin substitute who was sinless, who never once sinned, even no white lies, nothing, no sin in the heart, and nobody could do it. So Jesus took our place on the cross. Jesus lived the life we could not live and died the death that we could not die. Jesus went to the cross in our place. And we've seen that in Philippians just about three weeks ago in the sermon on the Christ hymn of Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And in today's passage, we see another servant. In today's passage, we see another servant who was self-sacrificial. And it was Timothy. In today's passage, we look at Timothy. Timothy, a self-sacrificial servant of God, an example by which we can follow. So my theme today, and I, I, I try to make my themes as close to the theme of the text as I can, because I want to expose what the passage of the scripture is saying, not my opinions. And so in Philippians 2, 19 through 24, we see the theme of the text the theme of the Bible. Timothy, an example of self-sacrifice. Timothy is an example of self-sacrifice. So look at verse 19. And in verse 19, we see the, the theme that Timothy will be coming to them soon. Timothy will be coming to them soon. In the last few weeks, we've discussed, it, we've discussed passages in which Paul exhorted them to good Christian living. Paul had been exhorting them to good Christian living, which is sacrifice which is Philippians 2, 14, do all things without grumbling and complaining, then you can shine like light. Uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is working in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. We've looked at these passages about shining. Philippians 2, 15, then you can shine like light to the world. So now we see an example of this sacrificial living. Philippians 2, 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. 
I hope in the Lord Jesus. I love that. The phrase in the Lord. I hope in the Lord Jesus. I hope in the Lord Jesus. You know, we see that that phrase repeated a lot. Uh, We're going to see it again in verse 24. We'll see it in verse 29 of this same chapter. We will see it in the next chapter, verse one. We'll see it in Philippians four, verse four. We'll see it in Philippians chapter four, verse 10. That idea of in the Lord. Do we think that way? I hope in the Lord to see you this Friday. I hope in the Lord Jesus to go to Chipotle on Wednesday. It's a good restaurant. I hope in the Lord... How often are we actually talking about hoping in the Lord and thinking about it being in the Lord Jesus? Philippians 4.10, rejoice in the Lord. And that means that he is the object of our joy. Jesus is the object of our joy. And by the way, I don't know if I've said this in a while, there are little inserts in your bulletin. The sermons are available for you all, but there are inserts that have fill in the blanks. And uh, the first blank is right there. Uh, that when we say rejoice in the Lord, that means Jesus, the Lord. He is the object of our joy. He is the object of our joy. Is Jesus the object of your joy? In Philippians 4, 1 through 2, in the Lord is repeated twice. In this verse, I hope in the expectation of the Lord. I hope in the Lord Jesus, the expectation that if the Lord wills, he can send Timothy to them soon. Now, a little bit about Timothy. Timothy is multi-ethnic. We can see this in Acts chapter 16, verse 1, where we see more about Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, we see that his grandmother was Lois and his mother was Eunice. His dad was not a spiritual mentor. His dad was a Greek. His dad was, was Greek. From 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, we see that Timothy dealt with sickness. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, we see that Timothy was young. In fact, Paul said, don't let them look down upon you because of your youth. We also see in other passages that Timothy was encouraged to be emboldened. He, he, it seems that Timothy was a little more timid. And Paul exhorted Timothy to, that God did not give him a spirit of timidity. Did not give Timothy a spirit of timidity. That's really, that's really cool. What a, a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. So it seems like Timothy was a little more timid. In fact, uh, Chuck Swindoll, if you ever listened to him, made the case, maybe Timothy was even an introvert. And that's why Paul had to encourage him to be emboldened. So Paul wants to send Timothy to them soon so that, he, so that he may hear of news from them. In sending Timothy, Paul himself would be able to hear news of what's going on in Philippi. The primary purpose of Timothy's visit was to learn the condition of the Philippian believers and report that back to Paul. This would enable Paul to pray for and minister to and lay plans to help this church better. Right? I mean, they didn't have email. They had a pretty good postal system in Rome. Actually, when Rome fell, that postal system wasn't replaced uh, for over a thousand years. They had a pretty good postal system, but it still took a couple weeks. But a personal visit by Timothy and then Timothy going back to Paul, that's gonna give him personal news of what's going on in the church at Philippi. Look at verses 20 through 23. We see that Timothy is a self-sacrificing servant of God, a self-sacrificing servant of God. He writes in verses 20 through 23, for I have no one like him. He will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. 
For they all seek their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I love that. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Paul contrasts Timothy with others who work with Paul. In the next few verses, Paul gives a major, a very major contrast between Timothy and the others. There is no one like Timothy. Timothy will be genuinely concerned for their welfare. Genuinely concerned for their welfare. The others all seek their own interest, but Timothy... Timothy seeks the interest of others. Timothy is truly self-sacrificing. Remember in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, and these are your next two blanks in the bulletin, consider others more important than yourselves. Consider others, like it's a mindset. Consider others more important than yourselves. Look out for the needs of others before your own. That's what we are to do, and that's what Timothy does. Timothy is an embodiment of Paul's exhortation in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Timothy seeks the interests of Jesus. Timothy seeks the interests of Jesus. I really respect John Erickson Tata. John Erickson Tata, you've heard me give examples from her uh, probably almost once a month. Uh, quadriplegic, she is actually painted with her mouth holding the paintbrush in her mouth and painting. 55 years of quadriplegic, uh, written, got wheelchairs all over the world. Has a ministry that helps those with Down syndrome and autism and brain damage and many, many, many other things. Johnny and Friends, just a wonderful, great ministry. She shares this. She says, I'm a competitor. Even though I can't move much, I'm a competitor. But I'm not the only one. She says there's Thad Massinger, Thad Massinger. When his parents invited me to their home, I watched Thad and his brother Nathan play Nerf basketball in the hallway. Thad was 12 years old at the time, and because he is paralyzed from the neck down, he operates his power wheelchair with a chin control. With a, he's operating his power wheelchair with a chin control. This kid balanced the Nerf basketball on his mouth stick and flick the ball up against the backboard to make a basket. He is making the basket through a mouth stick in his mouth, flipping the basketball up. He asked, hey, Johnny, want to give it a try? I replied, okay, but fair warning, I just might beat you. Wishful thinking. She says, me, the famous mouth artist, could barely balance the Nerf ball on the mouth stick. As far as flicking it for a layup, forget it. I couldn't even hit the backboard. Another time, the Massager family came over for a barbecue. Dad brought his Nerf basketball bat. Clenching the bat between his teeth, he sent the ball sailing over the backyard fence. Over the backyard fence by flipping it with a mouse stick. Mouth stick, I mispronounced that. Hey, Johnny, said he, spitting out the bat. Want to give it a try? Three, strike, three strikes later, I was out. Needless to say, Thad is doing okay. He is such an inspiration. She continues, you don't have to overcome the kinds of obstacles Thad has to inspire other people. The scripture today reminds us that taking a genuine 
interest in the welfare of others, taking part in their activities, contributing to their efforts, cheering them on from the sidelines, will place you in a league like no one else. As the Apostle Paul puts it, when we are self-sacrificing, when we are genuinely concerned for others, we are in a league like no one else. That's what Johnny's saying. That's what the Apostle Paul says. You know, as we continue in this passage, it seems that the Philippians knew Timothy. Paul says that he has no one like Timothy. That means that he, that he has no one else of kindred spirit. This means one sold. Uh, he has no one else of kindred spirit, which means one sold like Timothy. Now, Paul had, other, Paul had others who he worked closely with. Paul had others who were, who were very close to him. But it might mean what he says here is he has no one with him like Timothy. No one working alongside during this current time like Timothy. So Timothy is like-minded with Paul, one sold. Timothy seeks Christ's interests. What are Christ's interests? What are the interests of Christ? Do we seek the interest of Christ? I think if we're to think about what are Christ's interests, the first thing we do is we look at the surrounding verses right here. And I've already referenced Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Looking out for the needs of others before our own. Considering others more important than ourselves. Considering others more important than ourselves. Can we be silent and walk away in an argument? Or do we have to win and be right? I'm not good on that. I'm not good at that. I'm praying and working on it, and the Lord's working on me. But I think Christ's interests sometimes are being willing to not defend ourselves because we're considering their interests. We're thinking of them first. And depending on the situation, they might be in a hard place. They might be arguing for other reasons. They might be unreasonable. They might be other things. Maybe we need to pray and reflect. Maybe we're in a bad place. Are we seeking Christ's interests? Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling and complaining. Are we seeking Christ's interest? Christ's interest, Matthew 20, 19 through 20. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. Jesus is the one talking. Jesus, I, all that Jesus has commanded us, knowing he is with us always to the end of the age. If we don't care about the gospel, which first and foremost is somebody coming to know Jesus, and secondly is growing in Jesus, being a disciple, if we don't care about the gospel, we're not caring about Christ's interests. Do we care about Christ's interests? Christ wants people to be saved. I think of 2 Peter 3 and 9. Uh, God desires none to perish, but all to come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2, 4, it's God's will that all are saved. Christ wants people to be saved. Christ wants people to be served. Are we willing to serve others? Christ wants people to be saved. Christ wants people to be served. In this case, when he's talking about uh, Timothy, who seeks Christ's interests. Christ's interests 
are the Philippians. Christ cares about the church at Philippi. Christ cares about people. In verse 22, Paul alludes that they knew Timothy. Timothy has proven himself. Timothy has served alongside Paul. And we see a paternal image here, right? Timothy has served with Paul like a son. What a great image right here. Timothy has served with Paul like a son. How did Timothy serve? Paul says that he served like a son with Paul in the gospel. In the gospel. They were serving for Christ's kingdom. In verse 23, Paul concludes this section. He says he hopes to send him just as soon as he sees how it will go with him. It seems that Paul is waiting to see how things go for him before he can send Timothy. It it seems that Paul hoped the Lord willing to send Timothy to Philippi with a report of the apostle's situation and plans immediately. That is, as soon as he knew the result of his trial. So when it says, as soon as he knows how it will go with him, it might have to do with his trial. Evidently, Paul expected that a decision in his case would be forthcoming soon. Both for the love of the Philippian church and for the effectiveness of his ministry, Paul wanted his friends to know about his situation. In this case, he set us a good example. He wants Timothy to be able to share about how things are going for him. What is our attitude like? Is our attitude like the poet who wrote this? I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. Real service is what I desire. I'll sing you a solo anytime, dear Lord. Just don't ask me to sing in the choir. I'll do what you want me to do, dear Lord. I like to see things come to pass. But don't ask me to teach boys and girls, oh Lord. I'd rather just stay in my class. I'll do what you want me to do, dear Lord. I yearn for thy kingdom to thrive. I'll give you my nickels and dimes, dear Lord. But please don't ask me to tithe. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. I'll say what you want me to say. I'm busy just now with myself, dear Lord. I'll help you some other day. Timothy is an example of self-sacrificing service. No excuses. Look at verse 24. Paul hopes to visit soon. He writes, and I hope in the Lord. There's that phrase again, right? I hope in the Lord. I hope in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So Paul is also hoping to visit them. It is thought that Paul was eventually released from prison. We see that in Acts 28, uh, verse 30. So it seems definitive that he was eventually released from prison, after which he may have visited the church at Philippi. Someone writes, the submissive mind, the submissive mind is not the product of an hour's sermon or a week's seminar or even a year's service. The submissive mind grows in us as, like Timothy, we yield to the Lord and seek to serve others. We want to have that self-sacrificial attitude. We want to have that submissive mind, but it grows in us through actions. It grows in us through service. It grows in us through repentance. It grows in us also through time with the Lord. Time with the Lord. Let's make some applications. Do we hope in the Lord? In verses 19 and 24, Paul qualifies his hope with in the Lord. 
So many times we see Paul qualify that statement. James also said the same thing about planning if it is the Lord's will. In James chapter four, verse 15, planning if it is the Lord's will. Do we think about our vacation plans if it is the Lord's will? Do we think about our financial decisions if it is the Lord's will? Regardless of whether we can afford something, all of our money is the Lord's. Do we pray about how much we give to the church? Do we pray about what we purchase? I once heard somebody talking about making a somewhat large expenditure, and he was talking to me, and he said, I can afford it. And I felt close enough to be able to say, if we can afford it is only one part of what we're talking about. Does the Lord want us to do that? Because it's ultimately his money. Everything we have belongs to the Lord. And we put it that way, first and foremost, we have to think, is it the Lord's will? Would the Lord want me to buy this or give that to help the church? Would the Lord want me to give this, have, provide, buy this or give it to the rescue mission or the pregnancy help center or a neighbor in need if it is the Lord's will? Are we seeking the Lord's interest like Timothy? In verse 21, he sought, he was seeking the Lord's interest. Do we share the gospel are we praying for opportunities? Don't just pray that your family and friends know the Lord. Pray that God will use you to be a witness today. Pray tonight, Lord, I'm going to bed. Tomorrow, give me the opportunity to be a witness to people. When I say be a witness, I'm talking about having Christ-centered conversations with others. Do we love others? Do we serve others? Are we dependable? Paul knew that he could count on Timothy, right? In verses 19 through 20, he knew that he could count on Timothy. Can, can you be counted on? I gotta ask the same thing to me, about me. Can I be counted on? Are we dependable? Are we prompt? Are we on time? I was serving my last church. There was a guy coming in. He said, I'm here at the church to meet with so-and-so. And I said... Well, he'll probably be five or 10 minutes late. It's kind of his thing. He's always late. And the guy came, who came in said, well, at one minute after, I'm leaving. <laughs> if he's going to be late, that's a disrespect. I'm not staying. Now, he was only a minute or two late that day. But are we dependable? Can we, count on, can, can, can we be counted on to do what we say we're going to do? If we say we're going to bring something to, at some event, can we be counted on? If we say we're going to be at such and such place at such and such time, can we be counted on? Do we have to question whether we will forget what we said and we would do or where we said we would be? Are we humble? Philippians 2.22 talks about Timothy. Are we humble? Are we teachable? My prayer for myself and my family, and it's a true application that I gotta seek the Lord about, but also for our church, for Bethel, is that we are humble, approachable, and teachable. I also pray that we are mutually submissive. And I get that from Ephesians 5.21. In Ephesians 5.21, Paul says, submit to one another in fear and reverence of Christ. And I think we can have a submissive attitude even when we are boldly speaking truth. I think we can have a submissive, loving, humble attitude even when we are leading. And I think we need that. I think we can have a gentle attitude even when we are leading. In fact, I think it makes our leadership better. 
humble, approachable, and teachable. When others approach us about something, some problem or situation, are we quick to get defensive? Are we able and willing to go and ask those closest to us? Evaluate me. They're hard questions. And I can honestly say I've been there. Even in the last year where people bring something to me, so I go and I ask at least three, if not more, friends and family and closest people, hey, will you evaluate this? Are we humble? Are we approachable? Are we teachable? Bruce Dilliman, pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, great city, by the way, uh, told of a conversation with a member of his flock who said, this member of his flock said, you preachers talk a lot about do unto others, but when you get right down to it, it comes down to basin theology, basin theology. Dilliman asked, basin theology, what's that? The layman said, remember what Pilate did when he had the chance to acquit Jesus? And most of you know this, what Pilate do? He called for a basin and he washed his hands of the whole thing. But in contrast to Pilate, Jesus, the night before his death, called for a basin. And what did Jesus do? He proceeded to wash the feet of the disciples. It all comes down to basin theology. Which one will we use this week? Will we call for a basin and wash our hands of a situation? Or will we call for a basin and serve other people? It may not be literally washing the feet of others, but it could be. But it's service. It's humiliating, self-sacrificing service. When, when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, only servants washed the feet of people back then. It was a smelly, dirty job. And that's what Jesus did the night before he was betrayed. Let us pray right now. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now after looking at this text of uh, what an example of service, of humility, of self-sacrifice, what an example of integrity, what an example of, of, of dependability, what an example of being incarnational, being Christ to other people. And I pray, Lord God, that you, the power of the Holy Spirit, would apply this to each and every one of us us this week. I pray, Lord God, in each of our devotional time, we will take some of these questions and we will think about them. We will look at this text, we will think, and we will say, Lord, Holy Spirit, apply this passage to me. Lord God, I pray that we are also reminded the Christian life is a high calling and we can only live the Christian life by absolute dependence upon you, complete, utter dependence upon you. We can only live the Christian life by walking in a relationship with you. And if anyone is here today who's not surrendered to you, may today be the day to surrender, confess they're a sinner in need of a savior, believe in you as the one and only savior, to trust in you and commit to you. Lord of God, I pray that you would encourage us knowing that Dependence upon you and all that you want us to be in Christ, it doesn't happen overnight. It is a Christian walk as we stumble forward in the Christian life. So I pray, Lord God, you would also encourage the church today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.